tractor and all that stuff. Uh, God is good. Uh, I will say I did experience a very strange phenomenon on my journey. Uh, felt like across the world, from Florida and back. 80 degrees and sunshine in Florida. And I'm like, is this real? Is this place real? <laughs> I guess it is, and I understand for those who have traveled on uh, for the winter. Uh, but what a what a joy it was uh, to be able to see some family and friends. Always uh, great to be home and worshiping with our church family here, singing together. Uh, you miss that when you're on the road. Uh, you you miss uh, just the the familiarity and the friendly face, mostly friendly faces, um, for the most part. So um, we do have a full weekend uh, next weekend. So uh, be praying for preparations. I know Mike and Laura. And others have been working on music, getting it together uh, as our Christmas Eve service. And then Sunday morning, uh, Christmas Day, uh, as we come here to worship at 930. Uh, and what a joy um, it is to be able to, to uh, a season we call Christmas, where we focus on Christ and his birth, that we gather together as a church family to, uh, to just take some time to worship him and exalt his name. And uh, so we're looking forward to that as well. And you can be much in prayer. I'm taking a break from John, uh, the Gospel of John, for the next two weeks. Uh, so I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning um, and uh, to the book of Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter number one. And uh, we'll look at a few texts uh, between this week and next week concerning Christmas uh, for obvious reasons, uh, because it's almost Christmas. Uh, and I was listening to um, a pastor um, theologian kind of talking to pastors this week and he said average preacher will preach in 40 years or 30 years something around 120 christmas sermons you don't have that many texts to deal with uh, so that's a lot of preaching on the same text over and over he said don't worry pastor they don't remember what you said last week let alone last year so i'm taking his word for granted <laughs> Just kidding. It was a couple of years ago we were looking at this. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but it is an encouraging, uh, encouraging passage, time of year that we focus on the birth of Christ, and so we want to do that together. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 18, um, and we'll read down to verse number 25. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, in preparation for our uh, Christmas 
season here at the church and in my own heart. I did some reading on Christmas and uh, was fascinated um, and thought, well, this is just not helpful at all. It's a bunch of historical facts I'm not sure that you would be fascinated with. Uh, Somewhere around the 4th century in Rome, uh, the church began to regularly celebrate Christmas. So for you historians, there's a little bit of history to take home with you today. Uh, One thing we consider as we gather this time of year uh, constantly through um, singing and uh, through our services, whether it's today or Christmas Eve service, children's plays, is these timeless, well-worn passages in the Bible. Uh, Here in Matthew and Luke and several other select places where we again revisit the story of Jesus' birth. Uh, him coming into the world, uh, and we we preach these, we recite these, and some of you, as I was reading Matthew, and you could turn over to Luke and begin in chapter number two, and you could probably quote that along with me. You've heard it so much, and yet they still uh, they still are a source of encouragement for us year after year. I think in some ways we never tire of them, and for good reason, because of the substance, what they communicate to us what God is showing us in the birth of Christ. Uh, They continue to stir up hope in us, elicit our worship, and gladden our hearts. And for that reason, I want us to look at this week and next week uh, the subject of Christmas. Um, And here, as you know, in Matthew chapter number 1, it's no surprise that's where we'll be. Uh, By way of just introduction to the to Matthew and a little bit of the background, the Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus to us as King of the Jews. He is the long-awaited promised Messiah. And what we might find is an awkward way to start a book about anybody, and that is with a genealogy that most of us skip, uh, skip over and get to the good part, like uh, when Jesus is doing miracles. Yet Matthew is intentional bringing us back to the historicity, the the substance of who Jesus is. He begins Matthew 1, and I won't read the genealogies for you this morning. If I knew Ed was going to do scripture reading, I would have given that to him because <laughs> I love him. <laughs> and um, But anyway, he begins this with reminding us that Jesus is right to rule. Jesus' connection with two Old Testament figures such as the son of David and the son of Abraham. And, of course, walking through the names and the genealogy of, uh, of Jesus and his right as the Messiah, as the promised one. And so, the, really, the gospel begins, and the birth narrative of Jesus is really part of a larger, much older story than what we find in Matthew and Luke. In fact, over and over, we're brought to the, to the historical significance of this, not only in the fact that he is, uh, he is born out of the line of David and from Abraham, but over and over showing us God's faithfulness and providential care to his plan and promises. In fact, you see that all through uh, this genealogy, uh, the line of David and through peril and through famine and through war, through good kings and bad kings, through Babylonian captivity. All of this points us in this first part to God being faithful to his promise. That he will bring a ruler out of the line of David to sit 
upon his throne and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And who will he be? Well, he will, he will be, and he's described for us here uh, as Jesus Christ, born of Mary, betrothed to Joseph. Now, before we look at that, just uh, before we look at verse number 18, just to notice a few things. If you have your Bible open in front of you, you can follow along with me. Uh, the outworking of God's plan is continually um, set in front of our eyes, especially here in Matthew. You could go to Luke and find that as well. Uh, but notice with me in verse number 22, all of this took place. And we've already read that, but all of this what took place what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, pointing us back to Isaiah 7, 14. You go down to chapter number 2, verse number 5. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. Micah 5, 2, a reference there to that. Verse number 15, again, as they fly into Egypt, the writer points to that Old Testament prophecy found in Hosea 11.1 1, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Verse number 17, again, Jeremiah 31.15, to fulfill what the Lord has spoken. And so when we come to Bethlehem and we look at our little manger scenes and nativity scenes that you decorate with, what we find is not something just kind of haphazard. God is continually setting uh, into motion he's continually fulfilling his promises the the things he declared that would come to pass is is unfolding through this narrative here again in verse number 23 of chapter number two and all throughout luke we find god is faithful and through his sovereign providential work he is bringing to pass all that he has promised in the old testament and that should encourage us because we're reminded there's a great deal of promises left to unfold for us that God will make good on. He will fulfill. And so as we walk through these, through the story of Jesus' birth, we're brought into a much older story, not just the, what's happening here, but what God has promised all through his word. Now let's look at verse number 18 together. I want us to consider first as we... Consider the passage in front of us, the miraculous birth of Jesus. Notice verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. And while we're looking at this section through the eyes and the interaction with Joseph uh, the, and the other characters that are, are given to us as the wise men and Herod and others in the narrative. And Luke, you deal with shepherds and Mary. What we are concerned with or what the, the focus is, is Jesus. This is about him. This is his birth, his story, his, his beginning for us, at least in his human uh, incarnation. And so the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Well, the Bible tells us at first here in verse number 18 that Mary was engaged, what we would consider to be engaged. It was a more legal term uh, in those days than just engage, regular engagement, which took a legal form of divorce uh, in order to break that betrothal. And so Mary was betrothed to a young man named uh, Joseph. They were probably very young. Uh, at this time when people in those days got married very young. Here she was betrothed to Joseph 
Some suggest the betrothal would last maybe a year, space of time, which would culminate in the marriage feast at the wedding celebration, and after that they would consummate the marriage, and that's none of our business, right? You get to later. Anyway, so Jesus is presented to us in, uh, in this kind of natural setting of Mary being betrothed to Joseph, Joseph being presented to us. We don't know much about him, but here in the passage. And yet we see the dilemma. The dilemma is Mary's pregnant. And the Bible wants us to clearly understand it's not Joseph's child. I don't know if you get that. Uh, but before they came together, he says in verse number 18. So clearly, and that's a, that's a, a, a nice, a, a very polite way of saying before they, they had any physical intimacy, before they came together, she was found with child. Again, reiterating that verse number 25, he knew her not. He knew her not until the child was born. So we're brought into this kind of perplexed situation, Joseph He's engaged to marry. They're, they're, they're married in a legal sense. She's still living with her father and under his care until the wedding day, until the wedding ceremony. And yet, here Mary is pregnant. She is with child. And that is a growing and a troubling fact for Joseph. And no doubt we should sympathize with him in the day in which. He was in and all that he was wondering about. One critic in early church history said it must have been a Roman soldier's baby. And of course, surely that's what some people would have thought. Even his, his enemies would uh, make a statement about Jesus. We know who our father is, making the comment, who's your dad? And because of the scandal that would have went along with something like this. But the Bible is very um, very clear in reminding us that that what is going on here is not, an, is not just kind of an odd thing, or maybe in that culture it would have been an inappropriate thing, but this was a unique miracle that God had given to us, a unique miracle that God had performed through the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. In fact, that is the commentary on it in verse number 18, isn't it? He says, when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together... She was found with child. So we might think that is a sad thing or, uh, or an unusual thing, depending on the circumstances, a tragedy of some way. But they were amazed at what it says following. It's not normal. It's not something that you can, you can wrap your mind around. It is from the Holy Spirit. It is not from a Roman soldier or any other things that are going on. This is something that is from God. That's the very thing we find in Luke's account in chapter number one with the angel's conversation with Mary. And he says, in the sixth month, Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Here's a woman, a young girl who did not know a man who was pure in that sense and and she is approached by the angel. And the angel says, you're going to bear a son. He's going to be the son of the Most High. It's going to be remarkable. He's going to fulfill all the prophecies that God had given to the son of David. And then she asks a natural question. How is this going to happen? I've never been with a man. Now, naturally, we would think in our own human minds, well, well you're getting married to a son of David, Joseph, and that's how it's all going to happen. But the angel does not say that, does he? 
He said this will come about because the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child shall be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. Basically, he's saying that the Holy Spirit will come and that generating work of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary will bring life. Will bring life. Isn't that remarkable? Aspect of the gospel. Now, let me just reiterate that we reject what some have taught in church history and what Roman Catholics teach in our day currently, and that is the view that Mary is sinless, or she was spared a sinless nature. They refer to that as immaculate conception. Some of you may know more about that and have read on that. And basically, it's a teaching which says Mary was excluded at her birth from original sin so that Jesus could be born through the work of the Holy Spirit and be sinless. Well, we reject that. The Bible doesn't teach that. Mary needed a Savior just as much as you and I need a Savior. She was not sinless. And yet what we see 2,000 years ago in, in a spectacular scene in the Bible is that while all of this is going on, Mary was a virgin who bore a child and gave birth to a son without ever knowing a man. And it's almost like repeating myself, but it is still something to be reminded of and to be amazed at. And I want to ask you a question. Do you believe that? I mean, we're very intelligent people in our day. Medicine has progressed. Our understanding of the human body and anatomy has has progressed. Our ability to see things that normally was not able to see. I mean, we, we've come a long way, and science has come a long way. Are we still bound to hold to some of these views that says that Mary, a virgin, was able to bear a son? So some of you do. <laughs> Does it matter? Is it foundational to our faith? Well, some might suggest uh, that Paul, describing the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, never mentioned the virgin birth, never mentions Mary at all. In fact, all he says when he says the gospel I preach to you, of the first most importance, what also I received, that Christ died for our sins, and according with Scripture, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day, according with Scripture, and he says, and he was seen by a lot of people. Well, I think the question is more complex than just do we believe in the virgin birth? It goes back to do we believe in the Bible at all? Do we believe anything true of what the Bible tells us and extends to our understanding of the trustworthiness of the Bible itself. And the reason I say that, I, I read an article by one critical New Testament scholar, and we were always critical about everything. That's why they, they bear that name in their titles, I guess, which makes a striking and fearful statement, which I think is more common in our day than is spoken. And he says this, I'm sure you have to believe in the Bible. That's what he's, he's asserting. This is what people are stating to him. And he says, I'm sure you have to believe in the Bible or you can't be a Christian. That view has long thrown me for a loop, he says. 
Since none of the historical creeds of Christianity, the Apostles' Creeds, the Nicene Creed, for example, is there one word about having to believe in the Bible. Christianity is belief in Christ. It is not Biblianity, belief in the Bible. So basically what he was saying in all of this, he himself and many of his Christian friends don't believe in the virgin birth and still consider themselves to be Christian. And there's a problem with liberal Christianity in our day. And it's not just in our day. It's, it's an old problem that is continually with us. Like an old back pain. And I kind of wonder what they do about the resurrection. What they do about the rest of the claims of the Bible. If you reject the, the clear teaching of the Bible that Mary did not know a man. The Holy Spirit came upon her. And through that generating work of the Holy Spirit, she was able to conceive a son. And they were named him Jesus. If you reject that, then how can you accept anything else the Bible says on face value? In fact, what we become is, is uh, it judges over what the word says. And we get to pick and choose what we want to believe. And at the end of the day, we don't have Christianity We don't have a foundation to hold up our faith. Well, let me just give you three points real quickly uh, before we move on to verse 19 of why the virgin birth is essential uh, to our faith, why it is helpful and essential. Uh, The first is, uh, Kevin DeYoung states, the first reason why we... Uh, we hold to that is when church history has held to it all throughout the centuries. They never doubted what the word of God has said. So there is that, that continual declaration of faith throughout all church history. Well, that's a good reason, but it's not really a great reason. Because church history is often erred and people have gotten it wrong. Hence the Reformation, right? The second reason given to us is because the reliability of the Bible. We believe in the virgin birth because the Bible says here emphatically, and we see that again in Luke, that Mary did not know a man, and the Holy Spirit brought about life in the womb of Mary. It brings us back to the reliability, the trustworthiness of the Bible. To reject it is to reject all of the Bible. We believe it is inspired and fallible. But thirdly, It brings us to a place to the preservation of the two natures of Jesus. Born of a woman, he was truly human with lungs and kidneys and and a heart. Isn't it interesting to think Jesus had kidneys? Some of the things you have to think about. His childhood was much like the children in the day in which he grew up. He was sustained in the womb of Mary and and born naturally like every other child was born. But he was also unlike any other child that was born. And that's what the Bible is trying to make clear. That when we come to this season as as we think and consider Christ and his birth into the world, he's like us. But he is unlike us. He is like us in every way and in our humanness and and goes through all of our human experiences. And yet he is much unlike us in that he is divine. He is from God. He is God and he is sinless. In fact, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, reminding us that he was truly God, divine, sinless, without the contamination of Adam's sinful nature. 
He is unique. There was and is no one like him. That's why we celebrate. That's why we look at him in a different way than we look at anybody else in the world. Because he is unlike anyone that has ever been. But he goes on to say, not only do we see this miraculous birth, verse number 18, look at verse number 19, as we begin to see this meaning of his coming explained for us. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, isn't it isn't it interesting as you consider the story, Joseph and his whole plot in it? All he knew, he didn't know all the stuff we just talked about. I mean, all that hadn't been written yet and explained yet about the Son of God and the two natures and all that stuff. All he knew was Mary was pregnant. There was a scandal going on, which would have been natural. It wasn't his. He knew that. And then she's telling him something about an angel coming and, 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 and the Holy Spirit and all this stuff that was told to him. And he's sitting there thinking about what in the world does all this mean? What I have a little pity on Joseph. I think it is a beautiful testimony to Joseph's nature as the word of God presents to him what little bit we know about him. The Bible says he was a righteous man or a just man. We might refer in our day a, a godly man or he was a good man walking in the fear of the Lord. That's what he means by just as he mentions that there in verse number 19. The second thing we see about him in verse number 19 is that he has a compassion. He's not willing to add more shame to the fact of this young this young girl is pregnant uh, outside of the legal bounds uh, of marriage. So here he has this compassion, not willing to bring more public shame to her, but resolved to divorce her quietly. And some of you have studied this and understand that he had the legal right to make a public declaration and tell all the world, she cheated on me, she was unfaithful to her vows, she committed adultery, and and, and she would have carried shame for the rest of her life, and he would have been exonerated as a righteous man for doing so, but he was compassionate, not willing to bring shame upon her more than already was there, and so he was thinking about doing this quietly, which would have took two witnesses to do this uh, bill of divorcement. And, and there's something else worth noting here. And that is seen in his character. He was not a, a, a harsh, irrational person. He's thinking about it. <laughs> he doesn't act first and think later. Like sometimes we know people like that. Sometimes those people are the people we see in the mirror. And um, you have to own that if that's you and you never grow beyond that. But Joseph is not like that. He's pondering, he's thinking about all these things, and as he, as he is doing this, the Lord helps him, sends an angel along in a dream to help him out to, to wrap his arms around. What does all this mean that's going on? 
And he does so here in the next few verses, verse number 20 and 21, just a few uh, kind of statements um, that he makes about this. Joseph, as he comes to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife. That word fear there, do not shrink back. Remember, he's already determined in his mind that he's going to divorce her and he's, he, he's going to move on. The angel says, do, don't fear, don't shrink back from what you were going to do. And that is marry her, bring her in to be your wife. So don't shrink back from that. Don't fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There's something interesting. Him taking Mary to be his wife, he's not only taking her in knowing that she is pregnant with child, it's not his, but he's also taking in a bit of the shame and scandal which is going going on around Mary and this event. Why would he do that? Well, he does that because the angel says, what you see going on is not from man. This is not a mistake. This is not something. She's not been unfaithful to you. She's not violated her vows to you that she made in your betrothal. This is from God. And that would have been a hard thing to swallow. Even now when we consider about it, it's a hard thing to swallow all of this that's going on, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Go on, reiterate, she will bear a child, she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. And isn't that the clarity we see of Christmas? When God sent into the world to Mary, through the work and power of the Holy Spirit, a Savior, a Deliverer, one who would come and, and rule over Israel and, and, and one through the line of David and, and, and all the promises relating to that. And then he shows us what he means by his, his coming into the world, his saving. He says he will save his people. But he doesn't say from Rome. He could have. It would have been cool. That's kind of what they expected, Right. He doesn't say from any other, any other nation, but he says he will save them from their sin. He will deliver them. He will, he will come and deliver his people. He will be a savior. Do you think it's remarkable that when Jesus gives us a memorial to keep in front of our eyes, it's not a manger, is it? When he sits in front of his apostles, what to continually put in front of them. It isn't a manger and it isn't a star of Bethlehem or any of those things. Christmas is is beautiful. It's good to think about those things. But the significance of those things is found in the memorial that he has given us in communion. In the cross, isn't it? These are the things that you will continue to do to observe, to remember me. Remember my death until I return is what he said, right? It is found in the bread and the body that he took so that it might be broken for your sin and my sin. The significance that he points us to and puts in front of our eyes of of Christmas is found in the cup or, or the blood that was shed for the forgiveness, the remission of sin. 
We continue over and over. The, the substance here is found in what this, this child will do, who this child is. He will be a, a deliverer, but his deliverance will be in the salvation of his people, not from the enemies and the foes around them, but from their greatest enemy and their greatest foe, and that is sin and death and Satan. He sends into the world a Savior to save them. From the sin, he points us continually to the cross to see the significance of this. As seen, benefited to us, the benefit of this is seen extended to us in two ways. One, in the atoning work on the cross for our sin. That's why he died, to offer us forgiveness, isn't it? He came in the world and, and he was given a body, a body you have prepared for. You were not pleased in the sacrificing of, of bulls and goats and offerings of animals, but a body you have prepared for me. And that body is given on the cross for the remission, for the forgiveness of sin, so that you and I might no longer walk in condemnation. That you and I might not face the eternal consequence of our sin. So that we might not no longer live separated from God. The, the cure for that, that, that chasm between us is found in the coming of Christ into the world. Is found at Calvary, isn't it? He is the one who reconciles us to the Father. He has reconciled us through his blood and through the cross. This way he saves us from judgment, but he also saves us from abandonment or estrangement from God. As we read in the, new, in the epistles where we were once far off, been brought nigh through the cross, through the blood of Jesus Christ. As one theologian noted it, he brings us a free pardon which delivers us from condemnation to death and reconciles us to God. So he is our savior to save us from sin. He does that. First, powerfully through the death of the cross, but he also does that, as Calvin says, a second way, and that is by the sanctifying influence of his spirit, the Holy Spirit. He frees us from the tyranny of Satan so that you and I might live unto righteousness. Think of Romans 6 is that testimony, right? You are no longer slaves to sin, to serve sin any longer. He's no longer your master. He has no, no rights over you because of Christ's death and resurrection. You are set free so that you might be a slave, a servant unto what? Righteousness. Unto God. So Christ in both ways delivers us and will ultimately deliver us as we know from the presence of sin at his second coming in the new heavens and the new earth. And notice with me as he says this in verse number 21, you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, which means Jehovah saves, for he, he alone, will save his people from their sins. Verse number 22, and all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Growing up as a child, the church I grew up in was named Emmanuel. They spelled it wrong, evidently. It's with an E, the church I grew up in. and It's not here with an E, so I don't know who's right or wrong on that. But And I used to always, when we come to Christmas pageants, I think we had kind of a one-up on everybody else because, after all, 
God with us, our church, because it's Emmanuel. Independent Fundamental Baptist Church to go on top of that. But we visited there while we were at home. I went to church with my mother, but nevertheless. Um, what he is saying to us, Matthew is giving us a commentary through the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? Christ coming into the world, a Savior to save us from our sins. It is most uh, clearly seen in verse number 22 as we, as we kind of take that, verse 23, it means that God is with us. God is with us. Now, the Old Testament reference to this in uh, Isaiah 7, verse number 14, is a promise that God gave to Ahaz, king of Judah, who's the grandson of Uzziah, and it was a promise, it was a sign that he would preserve Judah against its enemies, Assyria at this time and Samaria. And the name of the child was symbolic. The Emmanuel, before a child will be born, Emmanuel, it was symbolic, and it was symbolic of God's favor. He was saying that I will deliver you because I've given my favor to you. There's God with you. God working for you to bring about and sustain his promises. And, and, and the statement itself is, is really a, a statement that is unmerited. It is a statement that is surprising because Ahaz was a wicked man. Israel was in idolatry and filled with wickedness when God made them a promise. I will spare you. I will deliver you. And so it's a surprising promise. It is a... It is an unmerited promise, and yet it is a reminder of God's grace pointed towards his people. Uh, apostles, through the Holy Spirit, draws, uh, draws this verse and brings clarity to mind that the greatest statement or the greatest demonstration of God with us isn't seen simply in Judah's line preserving, but what would come from Judah's line, and that is this child which was born, the greatest fulfillment of the words of what it means, God with us. First, God with us in his goodwill, and after all, that's what the angels either preached or sang. Some people don't believe angels sing. I don't know. We kind of look at that in Luke, but nevertheless, they did proclaim peace on earth and what? Emmanuel, God with us. God's goodwill towards us. But it is more than that as we come to find out here at the birth of Christ and what God is doing. It is God with us in flesh. It is God with us in flesh. You know, the Bible is filled with all sorts of interesting and, and heroic figures, isn't it? God raised up Moses and he raised up others along the way, David and and he raised up judges and he raised up prophets and they did remarkable things and used them uh, powerfully throughout the history of, of, of Israel. But there is more here seen in Jesus. That it wasn't God just raising up someone to do something powerfully and usefully for the nation. That he himself would take on flesh. That he would come to us in the form of a child. Jesus, that he would grow up. It was God with us. God taking humanity. 
And we go back to what we said at the beginning of this and what we see in the birth of Christ. It is God giving us his son who was very much like us. We celebrate and worship because he was very much unlike us just as much. It was divine, the divine son who took upon himself flesh, born in a manger so that he might become the perpetuation for our sins. Well, after we can't leave Joseph hanging, we'll quickly move on, can we? Verse number 24, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given him birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So what did Joseph do? After hearing the word of the angel, Joseph got up and walked by faith doing what God called him to do. He took Mary, and he protected her, and he raised the child, and he trained him, and he loved him. That's what he did. There's this simpleness, and not to oversimplify this, but there's a simple kind of response for us at hearing the message of the gospel, at hearing the, the wonder of what God has done for us in Christ. That's what we do. We, we hear it, and by faith, believing it, we get up and we walk by faith, trusting and resting in him and doing what God has called us to do day in and day out. Amen. And we celebrate. That's what we celebrate. It's not what we have done. Isn't that remarkable? We come this whole season and all this buildup. And I know there's a lot of secular stuff, and I'm not going to preach against that in your Amazon account and, and all that stuff like that. It's between you and the Lord. Um, and how secular we've made Christmas. I mean, the world does what the world does. But we spend all of this time to, to celebrate and to be reminded not of what we do. None of it is about what we do or what we've done. Our worship, our, our voices ringing out, the joy in our hearts, all of that points us back to what God has done in Christ. Right? Isn't that what the, the message that we see in front of us, what we celebrate is, is all of what God has done. Our kindness our action, our generosity, which statistics say often increase during this season, are all reflections, they're all reactions of coming to understand. They're out of the overflow of coming to see and know what God has done for us in Christ. And that should be a, a, a recharge for us as a church, as a Christian, as we come to be reminded again in this season of what God has done for us in Christ, it should bring us back to that overflow, uh, living out of understanding what he's done. The tragedy of that, of course, is in our time, that despite being surrounded by the images of Christmas, the nativity story, and all the seasonal things year after year, many have yet to come to rejoice in the glorious message of Emmanuel, God with us. And I don't know, maybe you're one of those here this morning. It's great, it's a nice story, but you've yet to come to see the significance of it because you've yet to come to embrace Christ as Savior. You've yet to come to see him as he truly is. Matthew goes on and writes, and I want to go into each of these, but he goes on, if you 
reading in your own time goes on and gives us several different kinds of response to this glorious message of Christ. There are some who are passive, such as the scribes and Pharisees in chapter number 2. There are some who are worshipful, praising God, such as the wise man. And there are some who respond in anger and full rejection as Herod and his murder of the children. And the question could be laid to us, how do we respond to the glorious news that Christ took on flesh and has demonstrated for us once and for all God with us? And isn't that remarkable? It doesn't say God against us or God away from us. It ought to, ought it? And yet his love and compassion and his grace reaching towards us because we'd never come towards him. That's the truth, isn't it? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. Thank you for your glorious grace. Pray that you would just uh, encourage us. We know we live by truth and not always by sentimentality and feelings and those things like that. And yet we, we come to these passages and I pray that you would give us eyes again to see afresh that these week and next week Lord, warm our hearts with the reality of who you are and let us ponder these things as Joseph and Mary and many others in the biblical narrative have done. We pray that you would, that your work be perfected in us in Jesus' name. Amen.